All right. Raise your hand if you've ever experienced this problem. You're walking down the street, just minding your own business, and suddenly someone runs up to you and says, hey, that's a really nice soul that you've got there. Where'd you get it? And you're left there feeling dumbfounded because you know you didn't get it at Walmart. You know you didn't get it from Amazon. So where did you get your soul? And even if you don't have that problem in your day-to-day life, Hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll have a good idea of how to answer someone who does ask you where our souls come from. You're listening to Onward in the Faith with Ray Burns. Ray is dedicated to equipping Christians to understand why they believe what they believe so that they can keep moving onward in their faith toward maturity in Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry financially, visit patreon.com slash onward in the faith. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. And make sure you visit onwardinthefaith.com, where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. Now here's Ray with today's topic. This episode's topic is going to be a bit of a different one for this podcast. Typically, a lot of what I record is a bit more practical or applicable to your everyday life. Talking about who is Jesus? How do we live our lives alongside him? Why do we get angry? You know, things that our day-to-day lives can be impacted by. But the question of where does our soul come from is important, obviously, and we're going to see through God's Word that we can come to something more of a conclusion than just an opinion or something we've heard somewhere. But you know, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that this is going to be something that's going to you know, radically shake someone's life. Um, if it helps, if you want a good reason for this departure, I guess we could say that we're celebrating uh, Onward in the Faith hitting 50 podcast episodes. Uh, that actually happened last week without me paying too much mind of it. And I realized after I recorded it that, you know, I should probably have a little bit of fanfare because 50 seems like a good milestone to hit. So if nothing else, we can say, hey, welcome to the 50th episode celebration where I basically just get a little bit nerdy and look at what God's word has to say about where our souls might come from. Now, as I'm sitting here recording this, I'm not really sure if this is going to be three short episodes or one kind of super episode. So you'll be able to tell by the title of the episode itself once I'm done editing it which one we're going with. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at three options that we have for where a soul comes from. Two of them are going to be fairly common. And of these two, most people listening to this will probably believe one of them to some degree. The third one is not new by any stretch of the imagination, but it is kind of weird and a little bit obscure and one that most people in their day-to-day lives, in their standard Bible studies, in you know going to church regularly, it's probably one that hasn't come up much, but if we are willing to give it a little patience and a little open-mindedness, we might see that this third weird one might actually give us a better understanding of the origins of our soul more than the other two that we're going to talk about. But, of course, I have to leave you waiting with anticipation, so number three is going to be the weird one. It's going to be the one you have to to wait for, so hopefully we can lay some good groundwork with these first two. So, without further ado, let's just jump in to the first option, or the first theory of where our souls come from, and that is what we're going to call the soul bank. Think about it, you know, like a big bank vault just stuffed with souls. And that is one idea that people have for where the soul comes from. Now, this belief doesn't really have a specific beginning that I'm aware of, but I do know that the Greek philosopher Plato actually made this popular 
outside of Christianity. You know, as you may know, Plato was an ancient Greek philosopher. And later on, this was actually adopted by a church leader named Origen, who lived in Alexandria uh, sometime around the early 200s. And so ultimately what Origen taught, this man named Origen, he taught that all souls were created in either Genesis 1-1 or shortly thereafter. So when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, he would teach, and a lot of people even today might believe that in addition to that, God, during the act of creation, also created all the human souls that would ever exist and put them somewhere in the spiritual realm. So right now, there are souls of people who are just kind of hanging out, waiting to be put into their earthly bodies. God just hasn't plugged them in yet, ultimately. And so if you want a a bit more of a fancier term for this, we might call this the pre-existence theory because our souls pre-exist our bodies. They are, you know, hundreds or thousands of years old or millions, I guess, depending on where you, you find your uh, understanding of the origins of the universe. But ultimately our souls pre-exist us. And then either when we're born or when we are conceived again, depending on when you believe life exists, I suppose. um, But we are given this soul that has kind of always existed. And now this, is exi- this, this idea has existed in Greek philosophy. It's existed in Christianity. It also exists in Jewish mysticism. And this is kind of a, a weird offshoot of Judaism. It's, it's not something we're going to get into, but um, they would believe in this thing called the guff, which is just a large container of souls that God is, is waiting to put into people. So... This has some historical support. You know, the church has believed it. It's been held outside the church, which on one hand, we may not give it that much credence, but at the same time, it seems to be kind of a widely accepted thing, historically speaking. So what we ultimately want to ask, though, and what should matter most to us is, does the Bible support it? Because it being a tradition is nice, and it gives it some credibility, but just because it's always been believed or we've always believed it, doesn't make it true and doesn't mean that it's worth holding on to. So what we really want to ask is what does God's word have to say that might support it or contradict it? So in terms of supporting the idea of of our souls pre-existing our bodies, there's two pieces of scripture that we can look at. The first is in Jeremiah 1.5, which says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And so here, very plainly, if you go back and read it yourself, you'll see that God is speaking of something he did with a specific individual, Jeremiah, before he actually existed. It says, before I formed you in the womb. In other words, before he was he was even conceived, God had set him apart for something. He had consecrated him. He had he had set him outside. He had selected him to be a prophet to the nations. And now a good way to answer, you know, how is this possible? How could God have selected Jeremiah before Jeremiah was even selectable? You know, before maybe even his his own parents were born, how could God have chosen him and known him? Well, if Jeremiah's soul already existed, then God could have chosen this soul, set this soul aside, you know, put a little special tag on it and said, this is the soul that I'm going to set aside to be a prophet to the nations in this particular time period. And so then when Jeremiah was conceived, God would have grabbed that particular soul that he had, he had earmarked and put it in Jeremiah's body. And suddenly we have an answer for this. So maybe, maybe that works. 
Um, another place we can see this is in Romans chapter 9, verses 11 to 13. It says, this is talking about Jacob and Esau. It says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, this is one when people you know, are kind of getting past kind of the basics of Christianity. Maybe they're reading through Romans and Romans always causes a lot of questions to pop up in people's minds. But when you hit this portion of Romans, you know, chapter nine, verses 11 to 13, this almost seems to go against this God that we know, because it specifically says that before Jacob and Esau were born, before they had done anything to warrant favor or hatred, God says before this, before they were formed, before they were born, I chose to love Jacob and hate Esau. Now, you know, on one hand, that just goes against our very idea of, you know, whoa, God, how can you hate somebody? You are, you're supposed to be love. You're supposed to love everyone equally. But when we get past that question, we might also ask, how did God do this before they were even born? I mean, isn't it unfair? Isn't it unjust to choose before these babies were even born to say, I'm going to love you and I'm going to hate you? You know, how, how can God do this? Well, if Jacob and Esau's souls existed already, then for one reason or another, and of course God doesn't reveal why here, but for some reason, God looked at Jacob's soul and said, this is the soul I'm going to love. He looked at Esau's soul and said, this is the soul that I'm going to hate. So when these two twins are born, I'm going to have a contrary relationship with each of them. And so this might even show us why some people seem to be born blessed or born cursed, right? Because God seems to pre-select people, you know, to, to set aside souls for one pile or another pile and say, you know, I'm going to love these and I'm going to hate these. And it almost seems to make sense for why, you know, what God is doing with these souls, you know, why some people seem to have it easy and others don't, right? Because we see that God doesn't just know someone. He's not just aware of Jacob or Esau's souls present, you know, or, or my soul or your soul. He's not just aware of the presence of these souls. He's doing a thing with them. Now, does he do that with all souls or did he just notably do it with Jacob and Esau, knowing that they would be born twins and he would be set against one and set for another? Again, we're not really sure, but the idea of a bank of souls existing can help us to understand how God could choose one person over another before they were even born. And so at first glance, it seems to make some sense that we had to exist before our physical forms in order for God to know any of us in such an intimate and specific way. It helps us to understand this idea of God, you know, when, when it talks about God choosing people, this can help us to understand it. Because even though maybe they haven't done anything in this life that warrants or doesn't warrant God's wrath or his favor, something about this, our souls pre-existing seems to give God's favor on us or against us. But let's now look at just a few issues that we're actually going to come across if we believe in this whole idea of a soul bank. Because as we're going to see, while it sounds good, it comes with some conclusions some realities that also have to exist that cause some huge problems and possibly even creates bigger problems that we can't answer than the problems that it does seem to solve about things like God's sovereignty or just where our souls come from in general. So I'm just going to share three conclusions 
that are problems that I see. Two of them are even held by other religions. And the third problem that it creates actually negates another important Bible verse that we'll see. Now, one of the first conclusions that we see is that this is actually a belief that's held by Mormons. And that is this idea in in Mormon faith that souls have always existed with God. For as long as God has existed, we have existed, which means that even before the creation of the universe, our souls were, were there. We were in a way present for creation. And so this is what Mormons use to say that because we are in a way equal with God, you know, we have kind of always existed in a soul bank. It's just that God kind of, you know, started doing stuff first. What that ultimately means within Mormonism is that we too will become gods because we are capable of being just like him because we are just like him. God is just, you know, a, an 18 year old, whereas we are still toddlers in a way, meaning that eventually if we do the right things, we are going to be capable of, of being just like God once we grow up to be like him. But then by that point, he's going to be even more powerful and, and, you know, more majestic. And so we're never going to catch up to him, but we are going to be able to get where he is now. So that is one problem opened up with the soul bank is that it can be, because it doesn't have a lot of biblical support, we can use it to say that souls have existed at any point in time. Were they created? Have they always existed? You know, because a lot of people would say that, you know, all spiritual things have always existed. God's always existed. Angels have always existed. Souls have always existed. Biblically, it doesn't work. But again, if we're going to make compromises, this is a thing that we run the risk of. Um, You know, another way that this soul bank gets played out in other world religions is in the idea of reincarnation. In other words, while you know, Christians might say that, oh, well, all souls are unique. And there's, you know, that big bank of souls says how many people are coming. What reincarnation would say is, well, there's a finite amount of souls. And right now that soul bank is basically empty. So when you die, your soul gets recycled into another person or into another living creature. So obviously Christians wouldn't believe this. But again, this is just a problem that we run into in that other religions believe this, but they can't really support it any more than we can. And so they can come up with whatever they want that fits their own religion, just like we can come up with whatever we want to fit our own religion. So those are two things that, you know, for most Christians, they might say, well, I don't believe in reincarnation. I don't believe that, you know, we're going to be like God and things like that. So it's fine, right? Well, here is where biblically we run into some issues. And that is that if souls have kind of always existed, they have pre-existed creation, then part of the creation account is actually wrong. So let's read Genesis 2, 7, which says, Then the Lord formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, we might read that in our English translations and say, oh, well, there's no contradiction. But when we look at what scholars and, and people who understand the original language and how they understand what it's saying, what we're actually going to see is that when it talks about man or Adam becoming a living being, it's not just that he went from being a body to being, you know, having breath. What it's more specifically talking about is that Adam went from a period of non-existence to a period of existing. In other words, Adam didn't exist until God gave him this breath of life. So this idea of a soul bank kind of being just created by God and then God grabbing the very first freshest soul out of it and putting it into Adam doesn't actually work because Adam would have pre-existed his own creation. He would have been 
in in some form a being just like we see with Jeremiah, right? We saw that Jeremiah or Jacob and Esau, they were known, they were beings. They existed before their bodies in this soul bank. But if that's true, then that would mean that Adam would have existed before this. So when when Genesis 2-7 says that Adam became an existing being, it's wrong if the soul bank theory is true. And then if we want to continue on to the, through the, the biblical problems that we see here, Another issue that we're actually going to run into is that this idea of pre-existence of a bank of souls always being around actually diminishes what the Bible says about the uniqueness of our bodies as well as our souls. Because what this ultimately means is that who we are, the core of our, our being and our existence is only found in our soul, that our bodies are basically just storage tanks. You know, they are, they are vehicles to propel our souls through life. They are ultimately not who we are. That, that is what the soul bank theory is going to have to say about our bodies because we, we've always existed. It's just that now that existence is kind of walking and talking and, and you know, doing a little jig on occasion. But if that's the case, then we run into a massive issue. And I was going to save this for the second one, but I think I'll just cover it now. And I'll just, as I'm recording this now, decide that this is going to have to be three episodes of content. So, Let's just set the frame here. If the soul bank is true, if our souls are all, hang we're all hanging out out there, that there is currently just a collection of souls. And every time a baby is conceived, that soul gets plugged in to that unborn child. If that's true, then one thing we need to ask is when do we inherit Adam's sin? Because we know that we are guilty before God for our individual sins, but we also know that we are kind of held guilty in a broader sense because we are human beings and all people are guilty before God because of Adam's sin. And I get that from a smaller discussion that we see in Romans chapter 5. And this would be, uh, the bigger part would be verses 12 through 21, but I'm just going to uh, just share the first part of this. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And then this goes on to talk about how Christ is kind of the new Adam where we all were condemned through one man. We we're also set free through another and where this is so critical and where the soul bank theory doesn't jive with it very well is that if we are all held guilty under the name of Adam, that means that our sin debt isn't just our individual sins. When we lie, when we get angry and things like that, our guilt before God is also carried through essentially our bloodline. We are guilty because we are part of mankind. We are human beings. We have inherited the sin of Adam. We've inherited the sin of our forefathers and, you know, through that, we see things like our sin nature, which then leads us to choosing our own individual sins. And now if we tie all this together, here's where the big issue comes from. If our souls are hanging out and they were kind of perfect from the beginning, then when that soul gets put into a body from this soul bank, then what happens is that soul then gets corrupted by our human flesh. And now still listening to that, maybe that's not a big deal. But here's where the huge problem comes from. What that means is, is kind of what I just said, is by doing that, it removes 
what is important about our, our human bodies, our flesh. And instead it just says, oh, well, our spirits are good. Our, you know, spiritual things are pure. It's this flesh. It's this body that's wrong. It's the physical things that are bad and corrupt. But not only do we not see that in scripture, we actually see the direct opposite because whenever you read, uh, especially Paul, he is constantly combating this heresy that existed in the church of that day called Gnosticism. Now, what Gnosticism taught is that basically what the soul bank teaches, spiritual things are good. You know, the spirit of man is good and pure. It's the physical body that is sinful. It's the physical body that is wrong and broken and corrupted. And so as people, if we want to attain kind of a higher enlightenment or a higher way of being, we need to remove ourselves from these physical sinful things of the world and instead become more and more spirit-based, much more spiritual in our lives. And so we see this crop up in things, especially when, you know, Paul or other writers are talking about how Christ had a physical form, that he wasn't just spirit. This was specifically written against this belief system that spiritual things are good and physical things are bad because what these people were teaching Christians was that Jesus Christ couldn't be in physical form because physical things are evil. They're corrupting. And how could Jesus have been the perfect man of God? How could he have not had his own sins to pay for if he was in physical form? So therefore he couldn't have been. And so if we are going to believe the soul bank theory, it is going to be very hard for us not to come to the conclusion that it is our physical forms that corrupt our souls when God gives them to us. And so, you know, like I said a little bit ago, the soul bank theory, it attempts to answer some questions. It kind of gets us around weird things like God choosing Jeremiah beforehand or God already deciding to love Jacob and hate Esau before they were even born. It's a comfortable explanation if we're trying to get theological with it. Now, sometimes we hold this theory without even thinking about the biblical implications of it. We just say, oh, I don't know, this makes sense. But if we're trying to use the soul bank theory to kind of get God out of trouble, to try to explain him in a way that's comfortable for us by saying, well, how could God know them? How could he choose them? Well, clearly they already existed in some capacity in this kind of pure soul form. You know, God, God marked them, you know, thousands of years ago. And now you know, he's, he's putting them in bodies and, and doing what he already decided he would do with them. But what things like, you know, maybe men like Origen or even Mormons, you know, what we're ultimately trying to do is we're trying to pull God down to a level where we can understand him, where we can be more comfortable with explaining these verses in a way that doesn't challenge our notions of God or doesn't force us to maybe even completely change our own theology in how God understands thing, how he chooses people or how his, this idea of his foreknowledge works. Because if, if we are going to look at these things and say, and say that, you know, well, God just chose them because God knows all things. God is outside of time. You know, those things are hard for us to understand as human beings who are stuck in time, who can only know the things that we are experiencing and that we can't look to the future and say, well, I'm going to you know, choose to give this person $20 who I've never even met. I'm just, I just know I'm going to choose to do that. We can't do that. We can only make choices based on the information we have in front of us. But God being God, he doesn't require a soul to exist before he can know them and even love them or, or choose to hate them. God does not require us to already exist in order to make an eternal decision about us. 
God is God. He can do these things, even if we cannot possibly understand it because it is so outside of our own experience. You know, but consider what we see in Isaiah chapter 46 in verse 10, talking about God. It says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. In other words, God sets the course for everything in human history. And we don't need to try to maybe get him out of trouble or try to explain him away in a way that is comfortable for us, but ultimately pulls God down to a less majestic level and makes him easier for us to put into a box, easier for us to explain away, and maybe even easier for us to sleep at night because then we don't have to question all other parts of what we believe about him because believing that souls just pre-exist everything is just simpler for us. So all this to say that if you study church history, this is not one that has been held in high esteem for very long. It was held in, you know, AD 200. After that, it was pretty quickly marked down, especially when I think people realized that it ultimately just boiled down to this idea of Gnosticism, which was already a huge heresy that the church had been fighting. So while we can try to kind of squeeze and maneuver the Bible in certain ways to try to make it make sense that souls have always existed, at the end of the day, it just doesn't work. Biblically speaking, we have church history on our side showing us that the church has never taken it very seriously. We have the Bible showing why this doesn't work. And we have just really other religions who have adopted this belief in order to basically explain things that they can't explain without the true and holy God. So this is going to mark the end of part one of this three-part series where we try to understand the origins of the soul. I think we can hopefully conclusively say that while at first glance, you know, if we haven't really thought about it much, the idea of a soul bank makes sense, but having kind of talked about it and really seen it from all these different angles, I think we all need to conclude that the idea of a soul bank just doesn't work. So in the next episode, we're going to talk about one that I would say most people listening to this are probably believing, if not the soul bank. And that is the idea that when a human being is conceived, God creates a new soul for them. So in the next episode, we're going to dig in, look at why the Bible might support that, and look at some reasons why the Bible might not support it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. This is a listener-supported podcast. If you'd like to support me and the work I do, you can visit me at patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith to donate every month, or you can visit a link down in the show notes to make just a one-time donation. I hope this episode helps you keep moving onward in your faith toward maturity in Christ.